you settle in this morning, let me begin by asking you an important question. If today was your last day on earth, what would you do? Who would you speak with? And what would you tell them? What would you do? Who would you speak with? And what would you tell them? I was online a while back and I was reading a post that listed some of the most famous last words ever spoken. There were a lot on the list. I've just included a few to share with you this morning. One was from Nostradamus, the well-known so-called seer or prophet of the 16th century. While lying on his deathbed, he said to his wife, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. Well, whatever predictions Nostradamus made in his life, he was right on that. He didn't last through the night. Novelist Jane Austen was asked by her sister Cassandra on her deathbed if there was anything that she wanted, and she simply said, nothing but death. Those were her last words. Hollywood actor Humphrey Bogart, while lying on his deathbed in his home, called his wife and children in to come and see him and to say their goodbyes. And it was said that he said before dying, he said these words, I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. Sounds like something Humphrey Bogart would say on his deathbed, right? James Brown, known by many as the godfather of soul, while on his deathbed with his family, simply said, I am going away tonight. Famous last words. You know, as I read through these and and many more like them a while back, something I discovered as I read through each of these is that though many who were quoted were influential in their day, nothing, if anything, that was said on their deathbed was all that profound, all that earth-shattering or life changing. What about you? If you knew that it was your last day on earth, what would you do? Who would you speak with? And what words of wisdom would you pass along, if any at all? You have your Bibles turned to Acts chapter 1. We are continuing our series through the book of Acts. We started it last week. And the title of this series is, To the Ends of the Earth. And this morning, we are going to be discussing the last moments of Jesus during his earthly ministry. These are the events that took place during his post-death, post-resurrection ministry. The period of time after his death and resurrection and before his ascension. So, These are not the words of the last words of a a dying man, but the last words, the final words of the risen Savior during his earthly ministry. And in this section, we learn that Jesus is commissioning his apostles. 
to take his message out to the ends of the earth. And we are going to look at this morning what Jesus did, who he spoke with, and what he said during this time, and what those final words mean for us today as believers and as a church and how they should impact us today. There are several important things that Jesus does and says to his followers at the end of his earthly ministry to prepare them and to prepare us for taking this message out to the ends of the earth. Notice first, he taught them. Jesus taught them. That's point number one. Before Jesus leaves them, he teaches them. He gives them the right message. If they're going to be witnesses for Christ, for them to faithfully take this message out about Jesus out to the world, like Jesus tells them to do in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, they first have to have the proper message. And that should just make sense to us, right? Shouldn't it? I mean, if you're going to be an effective minister for Christ, you got to have the facts about who he is and what he has done and the work that he has accomplished and what he taught. Look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Look at what Luke says. Luke says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Remember we said last week that in verse 1, Luke is alluding to his gospel that he wrote when he mentions my first book. In my first book, he's talking about his gospel, the gospel of Luke. And he says, in that book, I talked about all that Jesus began to do and to teach up until his death and resurrection. And we learn in verse 2 of Acts chapter 1 that Luke continues to explain all that Jesus continued to do and teach up until his ascension. So his, his doing and teaching doesn't end at his death and resurrection. He continues to do so until he is taken up. Jesus was hard at work until he left them giving these commands through the Holy Spirit to his apostles whom he had chosen. So before Jesus leaves his followers, he teaches his followers. He gives them the proper message. He instructs them on the facts. Folks, again, we learned something here right off the bat, something very, very important. In this passage, we learn that though Christ had chosen these men, he had set these men apart for ministry, we learn here in verses 1 and 2 that for them to be able to witness effectively, to do ministry properly, they had to first understand Christ's message. Get this, to minister effectively, one must understand his message fully. That's key. 
To minister effectively, we must understand Christ's message fully. This is why we stress what we do here at this church, at Fellowship Bible Church, each and every Sunday. This is why we we stress the importance of training and discipleship here at this church church. This is why our mission statement says what it does, that we at this church are all about making disciples by escorting people to Christ, but it doesn't stop there, establishing them in truth and equipping them for ministry. I'm convinced the greatest problem in our churches today, the reason why our churches are not having the impact that they should in the world is because people don't know the message. They don't know the Word of God. There are many people coming to church, at church, this Sunday, all across the country, who don't know one thing about the Bible. It's true. They've they've studied this. They've done surveys. They've they've shown people in the church, and and you wouldn't believe some of the answers given on some of the most basic questions about the faith. Let me ask you this question. If you say that your faith is important to you, that it's near and dear to your heart, and you cannot give a basic defense of Christianity to someone else, what do you think that says to them about how important your faith really is? What do you think God thinks about it? Think God's okay with it? Remember what Paul said? Second. Timothy 2.15, he says, do your best, believers, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. If we're going to be witnesses for Christ, folks, if you're going to be God's representatives, God's ambassadors, we have to know his Message And some will hear that and they'll say, yeah, you know what? You can learn all the facts you want to about Jesus, but if your life doesn't look any different, that doesn't mean anything. You know what? You're right. That's biblical. James says that we're to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, but we're to be a hearer of the word as well. To be a doer, you've got to be a hearer. But it's important that we're a doer of the word. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have all knowledge and I do not have love, I am nothing. And of course, consider our perfect example, the Lord Jesus. Was he a doer of the word? You bet he was. He was the word and a doer of the word. Luke tells us here that that his gospel is all about all that Jesus began to what? To do and to teach. You know, it's tough to teach something you've not got, gotten around to doing, right? We're not to simply know the truth. We are to live the truth. John MacArthur once said this. This is really good. He said, when the word of God has become a part of your living, then you've got something to teach. I like that. 
To be an effective teacher of God's word, you got to be a doer of his word. And again, Jesus exampled both for us, and we're told that he continued to do and to teach up until the moment he was taken up in his physical and glorified body to return to be with the Father. And we're told also, get this, Christ did it through the Holy Spirit. Look again at verse 2. We're told that Jesus gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. Jesus Christ ministered, he taught through the power of the Holy Spirit. Here you have a beautiful blending of the Trinity right here because we know that Christ was sent by the Father to do his will. We know that he was led by the Spirit. And here you have him teaching his apostles through the power of the Spirit. You see the whole Trinity is active in Christ's earthly ministry. God lives and he works in relationship with himself. You don't have any member of the Trinity functioning off on their own, doing their own thing. They work in connection with one another. And one of the reasons they do it is for our example. This is how we're to work in relationship with God's people and serving. We're also, like Christ, to be dependent upon the Spirit of God. To do the work that Christ has called us to do, we, like Christ, must be obedient to the will of God like he was, and we need to rely upon the guidance and the direction and the power of his Holy Spirit. Listen, if Jesus operated on the power of the Holy Spirit, under the power of the Holy Spirit, if he spoke, the Spirit spoke in and through Christ, and he's God, how much more so do we need to operate under that same power? It's very important. So the first thing that Christ did to prepare his followers, to prepare his ministers, his messengers for his ministry is that he taught them his message through the power of the Holy Spirit. And folks, again, that's what we're to do today. We have been called by God to know his word, to be doers of his word, and to teach his word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice what else Christ did to prepare his followers for ministry. Not only did he teach them, but he appeared to them. He appeared to them. Look at verses 2 through 3. Luke tells us this. He says, After Jesus had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So here we learn once again, like we're told elsewhere in the scriptures, that Jesus appeared to his apostles to his followers, to his ministers and messengers. After suffering a painful death on a shameful cross, Jesus rose from the dead three days later and he presented himself alive, we're we're told here by Luke, by many proofs. He made it obvious to them that he was, in fact, Alive, He sat with them, he talked with them, he walked with them, he ate with them. He allowed Thomas to touch his wounds of crucifixion. The first part of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also gives a more comprehensive list 
of all of those who saw the risen Christ. Paul says he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And then he appeared to James. And then he appeared to all the apostles. And then Paul says, he appeared to me. Why? Why did he show himself to all of these people over this extended period of time? Simple, folks, because he wanted them to go out and be witnesses of his death and resurrection. And to be witnesses of it, they had to witness it, right? Many of them had been there at his crucifixion and now Christ wanted to really them to really believe and have confidence in him as the risen Lord so that they would then go out and be strong witnesses for him. So he appeared to them. I mean, think about it. Who wants to go out and preach about a dead Christ? Who wants to go out and proclaim the message of a lifeless Savior? They needed to know that Christ was alive, that he had conquered sin and death through his own death and resurrection so that they would then go out with boldness and make it known. And that's exactly how it went down. He rose from the dead. He appeared to his disciples and other followers over an extended period of time. He continued to to teach them and prepare them for the work ahead. And he commissioned them and then he left them and then the spirit came upon them. And after that, they were never the same in a good way. And they went out and they impacted the world for Christ. After seeing the risen Christ, and being empowered by the Holy Spirit, Christ's apostles went out and they turned the world upside down for the cause of Christ. What changed? They saw the risen Lord. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that made all the difference in the world. Now, skeptics will argue that they were deceived by what they saw They didn't really see Jesus. They saw somebody that looked a lot like him. You know, everybody has a a twin somewhere. So they saw someone who looked a lot like him. Or, uh, you know, maybe they did see Jesus, but he didn't really die. Some believe he, he passed out and they thought he was dead and they put him in the tomb and sealed him up and then he woke up. And uh, somehow he moved the stone by himself and slipped past the Roman guards and went out teaching again. That's what some believe. They're just deceived. How do we know that the person they saw was Jesus? Well, first they saw him die. They saw the evidence of his death. Everyone knew it. And then we're told that he appeared to them many times in many different places over a period of time. And they, again, saw him. They ate with him. They felt his wounds of crucifixion. And then notice the message he preached when he was with them. Into verse 3, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Same message as before. 
When he appeared to them after his resurrection, he went right back to preaching the exact same message he preached to them before his death. He preached to them about the coming of the kingdom of God. He, he taught them what he had done for them, what he had accomplished for them so that they could be saved. And he spoke about how they were to trust in him and live as his kingdom people, as followers of Christ. And he spoke to them about the need to go and make this message known and advance God's kingdom and make God known where he is not known. Same message. They knew it was Jesus because they they saw him. They felt his wounds of crucifixion and because of what he said. He picked up right where he left off preaching on the kingdom of God. And some of you hear that and you say, great, Graham, how does that apply to me? Jesus has never appeared to me in a physical way like he did his disciples, though that's true. Does that mean you've never seen Jesus? Does it? If you're here this morning, You've come to the point in your life where you have turned from going at life on your own and you've been awakened to faith in Christ and you're trusting in him for your salvation. You've seen him, haven't you? Not with physical eyes, but with eyes of faith. The more you spend time in his word, all of his word, old and new, and you come to see Christ all throughout every page of the scripture, clearer and clearer, we we can see him, can't we? We can see him through the help of his Holy Spirit, through the study of his holy word, and through the works of his people. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Don't you love that? Peter was speaking to a group of believers who had not physically seen Jesus. And I'm sure there were some, you know, Peter being one of them, who had seen Jesus physically, so they probably felt like they were second rate. But Peter praises them. For their, for their faith in him. And he, he says, though you have not seen Christ like I have, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. You have joy in him. You've seen him with eyes of faith. Folks, I'll be completely honest with you this morning. I have never physically seen Jesus, but he's as real to me as any of you. He is. What about you? Have you seen him? With eyes of faith, do you believe in him? Do you have joy in him? Do you love him? Do you trust in him? Listen, for us to minister effectively in the way that God has called us to minister, we have to have seen the Lord in this way. We have to grow in how we see him through his spirit and through his word. If we do not grow in our knowledge of him and grow in our love and appreciation for what he has done for us, we will not be effective ministers for him. Notice the third thing Christ did for his followers to prepare them for ministry. Not only did he teach them, not only did he appear to them, but he refused them. He refused them. Look at verses 4 and 5. 
And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So so after seeing the risen Christ and being instructed on, on the facts about his person and work, I'm sure there were many that were ready to go, don't you? I mean, he had appeared to them. He had taught them what they needed to know. And a few verses down, he commissions them. He says, you are to go out to the ends of the earth and you're to be my witnesses. You're to go out. You're to make me known where I'm not known. You're to make disciples. And I'm sure many of them, after hearing this, they were fired up. They're ready to go attack hell with the super soaker. Don't you think they were that way? Something like that. The first century version of a super soaker. Yeah. I'm sure Jesus sensed this as well. In fact, I know, he, I know he sensed it, which is why he says what he does in verse 4. Notice what he says. This is one of the strangest commands, by the way, given in the scriptures from Jesus. He says, don't do anything. Wait. Now, that's unique for Jesus, right? Because throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he's saying, come, follow me, go, make disciples. Here he doesn't say come, he doesn't say go, he says wait. Now, this doesn't apply to you and me, all right? This doesn't apply to us believers. There's nothing for us to wait on, right? The Holy Spirit has come, he's living in us believers, but, but they are called to wait For the promise of the Father, which we learn in verse 5, is the Holy Spirit. God had promised long ago through his prophet Joel that there was coming a day when the Spirit of God was going to be poured out and Jesus lets his apostles know that 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 promise is going to be fulfilled in a few days. And and we're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks in Acts chapter 2. But I want you to notice here that before that happened, they were not to do one thing until the Spirit came. Jesus makes it crystal clear here. We are absolutely, get this, helpless and hopeless on our own. That's a point that's made all throughout the book of Acts and, and elsewhere in the Scriptures. Listen, we cannot do one good thing for God on our own. Think about this. These disciples here had been taught by Jesus himself. They had seen Jesus alive. They were witnesses, eyewitnesses to his death and resurrection. They had been taught by him. They had been commissioned by him. If anyone has ever been equipped to do ministry, you would think it would be them, right? But Christ lets him know you are not ready until you're empowered on high by the Holy Spirit. Folks, again, we we learned something very important here in Acts. We, We saw it last week. We see it all throughout the book. By the way, the Holy Spirit, that name, Holy Spirit, is is mentioned over 40 times in 28 chapters of Acts. I think God's telling us something, right? And He's telling us something here. We learn that the Holy Spirit is the power behind God's 
mission. Many have argued that Jesus took a risk by leaving this great ministry in the hands of ordinary men. And I've had discussion with uh, people on this topic before. What do you think? Did he? Did he take a risk by leaving this great work in the hands of, of ordinary men and women? It would appear as if he did, right? Because in verse 8, he commissions them, and then in verse 9, he leaves. He says, you're going to do this work, and then he leaves them in verse 9. But what you see in this text is that Jesus' confidence is not solely in his followers, but it's in the work of the Holy Spirit in and through his followers. Jesus lets his followers know in Acts 1.8 that they were going to be successful in being his witnesses throughout the world because they were going to be empowered on high by the Holy Spirit. So the reason they're, they're told to wait here in Acts chapter 1 verse 4 is because they're in need of the empowering of the Holy Spirit to be able to do the work that God has called them to do, to be his witnesses and to, to make him known where he is not known. And, and, and folks, again, if the disciples who had been taught and commissioned directly by the risen Christ needed the help of the Holy Spirit, we need it. We need it. Listen, if this ministry were left to us alone, God's ministry, his his mission would be in jeopardy. It would. Thankfully, God gives us his Holy Spirit to work in and through us. And this is a great news for all of you here today. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel inadequate when it comes to being involved in God's ministry. You think, God could never use me. I don't have anything to offer. Listen, if you're thinking in that way, you're thinking right. None of us would have anything to offer were it not for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. He is the power behind God's ministry. And if you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, you've been indwelt with the very Spirit of God. And get this, He in you is able to do great and awesome things. The story of redemption is filled with that. God's Word is filled with God using unlikely people to do great things. And throughout Christian history, we see it. God uses the the, the small, the weak, the ignorant to do great things for him. And they do it through his spirit. What we must do in turn is we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians, do not be drunk, do not be controlled with, don't come under the influence of wine, but be filled with, be controlled by, come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? How do we come under the influence of the Holy Spirit? By reading and studying and meditating upon and doing His Word. This is His Word right here. The Holy Spirit has written this Word. You know how you you become all about the Holy Spirit and doing what He wants you to do? Study His Word and do His Word. He's given us His Word. He's told us how we're to live as kingdom people. 
Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I believe that phrase and being filled with the Holy Spirit are synonymous with one another. That's how you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You let Christ's words dwell in you richly. You feast on the word of God. Read it, study it, memorize it, meditate upon it, and do it. Be under this authority, because this is the Spirit's word to us. So to be properly prepared for ministry, we need to be empowered. We need to be controlled. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is why Christ called his followers to wait. And not only did he do that, not only did he teach them and appear to them and refuse them, he also kept certain truths from them. Like we said in the last point, after Christ taught them and appeared to them and commissioned them, they were probably ready to go, right? They were ready to go out and do the work of ministry. And another thing we learn here in this text is they were ready for God's kingdom to come in its fullness. Look at verses 6 and 7. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Jesus had been teaching about the kingdom of God for some time before his death and resurrection and after it up until his ascension. And they were ready for the kingdom of God to come. So they ask, is this the time, Lord? Is it about to go down? Is your kingdom about to come? Look at what Jesus says. He says, this is not for you to know. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Though he told them that there was a time that was coming when he was going to come back, the day of the Lord, God was going to come. His kingdom was going to come in its fullness. It was going to be established fully. And, and though they were told that there was a time that was coming when God was going to right all that man had wronged by his sin, they were left in the dark on when that was going to happen. What Christ wanted them to do is to simply be ready. Christ said it's going to come in an hour you think not. Peter and Paul says it'll come like a thief in the night. And John says he will come suddenly. And we're to be ready at all times. We're to live each moment, get this, as if he's coming the next. Jesus tells his disciples, don't speculate, don't guess at the time. Just be ready and continue to do what I have called you to do. And what did he call them to do? Well, that leads us right into our next point. On top of teaching them and appearing to them and refusing them and keeping certain truths from them, Christ prepares his followers for, for ministry by commissioning them. He commissioned them. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, key verse in the book. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Stop there for a minute. Here we're told what they are to do and what we are called to do, believers. We are to be his witnesses. And what is a witness? A witness is someone who saw something and tells somebody about it. It's that simple. Christ kept it pretty simple, right? That's what it means. John gives us a good example of what a witness is in 1 John 1.1. He says, That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, that we proclaim to you. That's what a witness is. 
It takes knowing who Jesus is, knowing what he's done and what he's taught and sharing that with others. That's what we're called to do. And where are we called to do it? Everywhere. We're called to do it everywhere. Christ told his apostles, start in Jerusalem, move out from there to Judea and Samaria, and then keep going to the ends of the earth. We're still a part of this earth, right? And it's come to us. We still got further to go, don't we? But that's the commission. And that's exactly what his disciples did. And in 30 years, we talked about it last week, they took the gospel all over the known world. So there it is. To prepare them for ministry, Christ taught them. He appeared to them. He refused them. He kept certain truths from them, and he commissioned them. And then lastly, notice, he motivated them. Said in the past that the right motivation makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Christ gives his followers the right motivation here. Look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. No elevator, no escalator, no rocket, no nothing. That had to be amazing to to see. You know, when someone climbs up into a big metal box and blasts off into space, we think that's incredible, right? Christ didn't have any of those things. He was with them on that mountain, and after commissioning them, he took off. He was taken up right off the mountain. Look at verse 10. This is amazing, too. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. So after Jesus was taken up, they were standing there gazing into heaven, amazed at what had just happened. And then we're told two men appeared and stood by them in white robes. And they said, why are you looking up into heaven? Which is kind of a strange question, right? I mean, Jesus just took off. And these men probably descended down to them. That's a lot of heavenly traffic going on, right? They they had never seen anything like this before. But what is implied here is this. Why are you looking up longingly thinking he's leaving you for good? Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. They said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back the same way you saw him go. That's motivation right there, isn't it? He commissioned them. He left them. But he promised that he's coming back once again. And we learn that they went out from there not knowing the day or the time of his return, but confident that he was returning someday soon and they lived the rest of their days as if he was coming back any moment and the gospel spread all over the known world and the kingdom of God advanced everywhere. Believers, we, like they were then, we're living in these last days. We are Jesus could come at any time. I don't know how much time we have. I know we're closer than we were yesterday. What I do know is this, get this. Whatever needs to be done for Christ needs to be done right away because he's coming someday soon. 
Scripture is clear that he's coming back someday. And get this, that someday may be today. So we got to be ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? Get this, the only thing that we're promised is right now. So I urge you, I encourage you this morning, if God is working on your heart in life right now, today, don't delay. Do not wait. If you're here, you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, I urge you right now, while there is still time, get this relationship right. Turn from your sin. Make Christ your Lord right now, today, so that you can be ready for that day when he returns. Urge you today, if you've never made that decision, do not leave here today without doing so. Let's pray.